If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Whether you have just started your career transition into the nonprofit sector or you have been a dedicated nonprofit professional for decades, you know that our work is quite unique. We are surrounded by passionate team members and get to have an incredible impact on the lives of people we serve and the communities that we serve. But we also know that that privilege comes at a cost. Our work can be emotionally taxing, require sometimes highly technical processes, or even worse, those really bureaucratic processes that are forced on us, And then, of course, paired with intense environments and the weight of knowing what's at stake, not just our jobs, but the mission of our organizations. And day after day, these factors have a deep impact, making organizations susceptible to high turnover rates and individuals at risk for, wait for it, wait for it, that's right, burnout. That is why we invited our guest today, grant professional, speaker, and trainer, Diane Leonard. Diane has a wealth of experience. She has opened her own consulting and grant writing practice more than 14 years ago. And during that time, she has personally helped nonprofits secure $61.6 million. And she has trained nearly 18,000 professionals. Her many years of experience and passion for helping nonprofits build their own capacity has brought her also to the point where she has created Agile in Nonprofits with the mission of assisting nonprofits in building their capacity and increasing their organizational efficiency. To add to her very well-rounded professional life, I got to also share with you that she's a graduate of the Jefferson Leadership Institute and serves as a board member for the Upper St. Lawrence Riverkeeper. Hey, Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So I know very, and I say this all the time on the podcast, I know very little about sports and I believe you affiliate your work in some way with Scrum, but I don't even know what Scrum is. So can you fill me in? Absolutely, because you say Scrum and 
maybe you knew enough about sports that maybe rugby is what came to mind, or maybe you thought, I mean, it's nonprofits. So what acronym did we just say? I'm sure there was something. So Scrum, it is a specific framework in the world of agile. And so Scrum, co-created by Dr. Jeff Sutherland, is a way that teams approach doing their work. So it's a framework. It looks different in every organization by just a little bit to their organizational culture and their team, whether it's software, nonprofits, for-profits. It's just, it's a framework for the way that we approach doing work. Can you say a little bit more about that framework? So the Scrum framework is basically summed up by what we call the 353. There's not a lot of rules that you need to follow. That's why it's a framework. There's a lot of patterns and other things that happen. And so what it's looking at is the team and those that lead the team. So you've got a product owner, really the person setting priorities. You've got a scrum master, someone trying to help remove impediments. And then you have team members, those that are helping to do the work. Within that, then, there's five ceremonies, five events that happen within each section of the calendar that you're looking at. We call them sprints. In my team, our writing team does two-week sprints. My marketing and training team does one-week sprints. But so it's a period of time that you're focused on your work. So these five events happen in each of those sprints and then produce some artifacts, things like the product backlog, the, I call it the list of all the things, right? We love to do all the things. But so it's a framework that helps you to look at what, regardless of your industry, how you're going to approach that work as a team. Before we go any further, what does a two-week sprint look like for your team? Sure. So a two-week sprint always looks the same in the sense that we start with a team planning call where we're talking about the work that's coming up. If I'm thinking about that it's our writing team, they're always thinking about grant deadlines, right, what's coming up. And then it always looks the same in the sense that we get together for 15 minutes for a daily scrum to talk about the work that's happening, what we're doing each day towards that goal, and in particular, if there's any impediments. So how can the team help solve? Do we need this piece of information? I can't find that Census Bureau link I was looking for. Fill in the blank, right? Teams always have some sort of impediment, and we try to help solve them for each other. So the client work, the deadline work, that's different each and every time. Is it foundation that week? Is it federal doesn't matter. The structure and the framework and how we interact as a team is what always stays the same. Got it. And so now I think I understand the scrum. So the scrum is like a huddle. Yes, it's a great way. There's a, if you think about, I didn't know anything about rugby. When I went to, read the scrum book, went to my first class, I was like, nope, nothing about rugby. But there's a great video that they often play at the beginning of their courses to help get you excited. And if you think about what it looks like when there's a sports team and they're all huddled like that in the starting formation for rugby, they're all pumped up. Can you imagine if your nonprofit team, whether it was a grant team or development team, right, at the beginning of their two-week section of work, they're so excited that they're like, linking arms and chanting together and getting ready to do the work. Our teams aren't quite there yet, but man, the visual makes me laugh and like get excited every time. So can we unpack the scrum that you and your team have? Absolutely. Great. So you said it's 15 minutes long. Are you doing it in person or or are a lot of your team members remote? So you're doing it virtually. Yeah. So we have two different scrum teams that we run and they operate differently. So like the marketing and training team, we're in person. So our daily scrum is together. Our writing team is distributed. We're across multiple time zones. So that one's happening virtually. 
And then because there's overlap between the two teams in terms of the work that's linked, we do a scrum of scrums. And that one, because we're distributed then across the teams, that's a, another virtual time for them to check in. So I love it because now we can talk about what a virtual scrum looks like and what an in-person scrum looks like because you got one of each. So your in-person scrum, how do you structure those 15 minutes? What does it look like? So we usually, because we're a caffeinated team, in particular our marketing and training, we really love our coffee. We usually have a coffee cup in hand and usually we're standing because the intent is it's supposed to be quick. It's not supposed to be drawn out. Not all team members are always able to stand at the meeting. That's okay. But in our case, we usually are. And we talk through three main questions. What did we do yesterday towards our sprint goal? What are we planning on doing today towards our sprint goal? And what impediments do we have? It is anything but a status check-in. It's not meant to be a list of here's all the things I did yesterday or here's all the things I'm going to do today. We're talking pretty high level about how we're moving towards our goal. So that's how we do it in person. Got it. And so when people are doing those status check-ins, do they do all three at the same time? So like if it's my turn, do I say, here's what I did yesterday toward the goal, here's what I'm going to do today, and here's my impediment? Or does everyone first say what they did yesterday, kind of going around the room? So in our setting, we tend to do more round robin. But I've seen teams do it a variety of ways. And I think the daily scrum, as long as it is not focused on a status of here's what I did the list, right? And rather it's a discussion of the big goal and how you're moving towards it. You can be pretty flexible. Again, it's a framework, right? It's not a mandate for all the details. Can you give an example of the type of an impediment someone might say they're having? Sure. So we'll stick on the training side. So we're putting together a really big free online summit with one of our partners, And they also rely on an Agile framework. So we speak the same sort of language, right? So we agreed on some timelines for what would happen in sales pages and when they would go up. And we're coordinating speakers and bios and all those things. One of the speakers hadn't gotten us their bio or their title. And so, you know what? Even though both partners were totally on the same page, we had a timeline like um, without one of our eight bios and titles, we can't release the sales page. We can't release the save the date. Like everything was on hold. So because that came up at the daily scrum, who on the team's going to say, I can help fix that? And actually in that case was me. I said, you know what? I know that person really well. Let me drop them a quick note. And if nothing else, hey, I've got their cell phone number. I'll just give them a quick text, right? So you quickly come up with a solution. You try to implement it. You see if it works. And hopefully that impediment is a thing of the past. I will say there's nothing like the chief executive reaching out. And there's also nothing like the deadline of a print of something going into print. Like, okay, we need your title by today at five or it's not going to end up in the save the dates. Yeah, absolutely. And on the writing side, because both teams right, are using Scrum, we tend to find that the impediments are clients have been asked for information to go into a grant application that's really critical, but they might not understand how critical it is. And same thing, sometimes it takes maybe not their lead writer, but somebody else on the team saying, this is so important for you to get the money. We get that it seems like one detail, right? Like who's the letter of support from or how many people are you going to serve? But like, you're holding us up. So sometimes playing the difference in terms of like power differential in the team helps remove that impediment for sure. Right. So at the end of that scrum, I don't know why I'm picturing like everybody's hands in the center of a circle and I'm going like, go marketing or whatever. What happens at the end of the scrum? How do you end it? Sure. So when the sprint is up, the way that you're supposed to close it is with a retrospective. 
So what went well, what didn't go well, and what's one thing that we could do better as a team to make us happier or faster? So you try to come up with a Kaizen that the team can implement. Really, it's the top priority thing you're actually going to do over any other work in the upcoming sprint. So sometimes there's a long list of things that went well. Right? Other times you're like, oh, gosh, this is a longer list of, man, didn't see that coming, right? It's different every single time. But we give a time box of about 45 minutes up to that amount of time for the team to discuss those three things. What went well? What didn't go well? What could we do that would make us faster and or happier? Got it. And so when you're doing a two-week sprint, have you ever reached a point where you get to the end of the two weeks, but you've not reached the finish line? Despite our best efforts, it has happened because when we're long planning on something like a forecasted grant opportunity, that's a great example of where you think something's going to happen. You think grants.gov is supposed to release something by a certain day, fill in the blank, right? The grant world's always a moving target. And so as a result, you're like, oh, well, we thought this would happen, but the externality got in our way. And so all of a sudden it was out of our control. So we shift our planning and you can shift the scope during the planning. The product owner, so the one giving the priority to the team, can do some shifting during a sprint. Maybe trade something out. You realize, geez, that didn't open the way we thought it would. You know what? We could get started on draft B instead of draft A and trade things in and out that are of like the same size. And so when the sprint is over, so you say it's a two-week sprint, what happens after that? Do people get a break? Like what happens afterward? Yeah. I mean, by having the title of it be sprint. I'm a runner in my spare time, right? So it feels like when you sprint, right, whether it's around the track or on the treadmill, you want to maybe walk or you get to the top of the hill and you're like, okay, time to slow down, right? Or time to grab a glass of water. So the retrospective does give that time for everyone to pause and reflect and sort of catch their breath before you start again. And part of why it's so important that you think in these smaller chunks is really what's a sustainable pace for a team. Because if we sprinted, physically sprinted all the time and never paused for water or for rest, well, I guess we'd be in the Olympics, right? (laughs) Or something like that. We'd be winning world records for marathons. But we need to pause. We need to catch our breath. So that retrospective and then the planning meeting that's the next step, those are meant to be a natural pause to catch your breath, assess the speed, the sustainability, the velocity of the work that you're doing. And to your point, I mean, I don't know that you'd be in the Olympics, though. I think you'd be in the hospital, which is that burnout question we're going to be talking about as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nonprofit burnout, right? One of my favorite books is The Happy, Healthy Nonprofit, which I guess is a weird favorite, right? But when Beth and Alicia wrote that book, I think the reason that it's taken off and been so well received in the field is because There's so many people that are so passionate about their work, but that are feeling like they're constantly sprinting and they're not getting the break. They're not getting a chance to breathe. And to your point, their health could be at risk. So after that sprint, it sounds like you've got a few days that are not as task oriented. Well, it's not actually about having a few days off. It's a short breather. It might be that, for example, your sprint starts on Mondays. So it's Fridays when you're doing the retrospective. So you happen to have the weekend. But really, in terms of business days, you're not taking days off. It might be just a few hours of planning time. In terms of business days, they roll one right next to the other. So let's transition over and chat a little bit about burnout. Because like you, I think 
that burnout is probably a chronic syndrome in the nonprofit sector. And I think many of us who work in the sector probably have experienced burnout more than once. Unfortunately, I agree. I think it's a huge concern. I think that when we look at the work that nonprofit professionals are doing, there's some passion usually underlying why they get into the work, right? I mean, for-profit folks can be passionate about their work. Sure. Designing the car or the rocket ship or whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? Creating a great meal for your experience in a restaurant. When you're dealing with people in the social services sector, and I'm generalizing in a huge way, but there's usually a different motivation behind it because the pay often isn't the same, right? So there's some intrinsic motivator for why it is that they're involved in nonprofit work. Right, right. So so what are some things that nonprofit organizations or managers or executive directors or boards can be doing to help people meet that intrinsic need without burning out? Sure. And I think this is part of why we started to, I mean, we looked at Scrum as a framework within our teams, because as writers, just like your work, we say we're a nonprofit or a for-profit, but with kind of like a nonprofit heart, right? So we're crossing the lines. We're constantly in the nonprofit space, even though physically my office walls are for-profit, right? And so we're in that space where we're seeing how deadline-driven our work is as a grant team and supporting the organizational grant teams. The deadlines and the stress that that puts on the staff, whether it be one main staff person at the nonprofit or even a team. And then how do they pause? They feel like they constantly have a fire hose of deadlines open on them. And so hashtag all the things stresses them out and rightfully so. So what's a sustainable pace? I mean, one of the biggest questions I get asked when I'm teaching newer grant professionals is, well, but how many grants should I be able to write in a year? That's a loaded question, right? It depends on so many things. But that pressure from the board, from those they serve, they always need more money, right? That will never change. They always want more money because even if they're doing great financially, they have more new ideas and therefore they need more resources. So the drive to find more money is then creating this pressure for all the things and therefore the burnout because they're not structuring their work in a way that's sustainable, Right? It's going to lead to that burnout, whether it means that they change jobs, they change fields. There's a lot of different ways that it plays out in our sector. Right, right. And it's interesting when you talk about, and it's not uncommon for boards or for executive directors to say, oh, I expect three grant proposals or four grant proposals or five grant proposals a month. I think oftentimes what they, the unintentional consequence of that is that they essentially get boilerplate proposals and they get, you know, frankly, clearly proposals that are not that great. But they also will often then, you know, those grant writers will, will be drafting proposals to really small foundations and funders for $1,000, for $2,000. And, you know, you've got to get a lot of $2,000 grants to make a million dollars. The math says yes, an awful lot of grants. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hold on. Hold on. I want that as a bumper sticker. The math says yes. Oh, my gosh. I love that. But but you get my point. I mean, like when there are these unreasonable expectations, at some point you're like, okay, well, I've written to all the probable funders and now there's other follow-up work I need to be doing, other things I need to be doing, but they just want me churning out proposals. So, you know, let me see if JCPenney has a philanthropic fund I can apply to. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to work the metrics, right? And so if we're thinking about our strategic plan or vision that's setting forward the work for the nonprofit, 
How do you find the resources? Talking about small grants, oh, we need a whole different podcast conversation for that soapbox. I mean, I started as a grant maker, right? So when I would get in proposals that were really small, okay, sometimes there's a reason that you want to give that small grant and that would make a difference. But when you think about the work and the money it takes to write it, to implement it, you've spent more than that before you even got it in the mail or put it in the online portal, right? And also I have to say from your perspective as a grant maker, and this is not true for really small family foundations that might only be giving fifty dollars or $100,000 a year. But if as an organization, you're giving away tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you're not going to have the human capacity and bandwidth to do that in five and $10,000 grants. You're just not. Yeah. Yeah. It's on both sides that it's just, it, that's not sustainable either. So if we think about the burnout and that idea that you're trying to constantly write more so that you can help meet the board and the management team's goals, what they've set out for metrics. What happens? Heroics. I stayed up and I wrote until 11.59. It was due. We got it in. Whew, it was great. All right. Occasionally really weird things happen and like something heroic might be necessary to make it through Grants.gov. I admit it could happen. 99% of the time there is no reason. We should hear stories like that in the field. But they're what we hear at Grand Professionals Association conferences all the time. And it just, it makes my professional heart really sad <laughs> because we're going to lose then those writers out of the field or the nonprofit colleagues that had to help at those weird hours or that had to work all weekend on a grant proposal. It's not okay. It's not sustainable. It's going to just, our industry can't hold that methodology. It can't hold that idea of heroics as the way that we survive. It's interesting that you say that, Diane. My first job out of college, I was part-time doing direct service for the same organization. And then the other 20 hours a week, I was doing grant writing for them. You know, and I think that's what a lot of organizations do. You know, they take a really junior staff member, like, yeah, maybe you can write proposals, give it a shot. And so that's kind of what they did to me. And it frankly was a great opportunity for me. But it was really also remarkably difficult. And I actually remember that first year having to pull two or three all-nighters and finally, I went to my boss, who was the development director, and I, I kind of said to her, in college, I never pulled a single all-nighter. In fact, normally I have my papers done a day and a half before they were due because I never want to pull an all-nighter. Can we talk about this? And she was fantastic in mentoring me and coaching me and helping me understand how I could better prioritize so that I did not find myself in a place where I'd pull all-nighters. That story. I'm like, yes, I always say the same thing. I physically couldn't pull all-nighters in college. As a mom, I've gotten close a few times with babies and sicknesses, and then I'm like a zombie the next day. I shouldn't be allowed near a computer to type anything, right? So your mentor in that first job, if I were going to put a title on anyone, agile leader, to have you go as a young staff person like that and have a reaction... I don't think that all nonprofit professionals feel comfortable that that would be the reaction they'd get if they said, this is exceeding my capacity. Here's the velocity we have happening, but that's beyond my capacity, right? I need help. It's not sustainable. So that's such a great story, though, to show it. It can happen in the field. And it does often. It just sometimes gets buried. And then there's a fear. I don't know. Will it? Do I have an agile leader or not? And I'll share with you, I really lucked out on that job and that the development director I was reporting to for my grant writing was a late-term professional. So she had been doing fundraising for 30 or 35 years. She had another five or 10 years left in her career. And she really just kind of brought this gravitas and this wisdom about, oh yeah, if you're going to be doing this for you know the next several decades, you can't wear yourself out now. 
It's so true. I actually have three colleagues of mine in the Grant Professionals Association. They just wrapped up a survey about burnout, trying to still, here we are, we're in 2020, right? And feels like, shouldn't we have figured this out by now? But so they just wrapped it up and are going to do a big GPA journal piece about burnout just in grant professionals because it's not new, right? But it's something that still needs more attention, I think, in not just our field as grant pros, but all nonprofit professionals. And so, Diane, I want to get those colleagues on the podcast when that piece is ready to go to press. So please, please link me up with them. We need to get them on the podcast. You betcha. Well, Diane, we're rapidly starting to run out of time. I want to make sure that I leave time for the off the map question. And one of the reasons why I'm wrapping up a little bit earlier to ask you the off the map question is that's actually not that far off of the map. So I had thought about asking you an off the map question about the Cornell Formula race car team. And then I also thought about asking you an off the map question about boating safety training with the Coast Guard, the United States Coast Guard. And then we got on Skype here and and I'm able to see you and you're able to see me. And behind you, there is a whiteboard. And on that whiteboard is taped 12 calendar months. And I see pink stickies and yellow stickies and it looks like bluish or greenish post-it notes. And then I see some things have been written and some things are highlighted. So I am fascinated by your what's clearly an annual organizational system right behind you. I need you to tell me about it. <laughs> I need to be careful with what's my backdrop for Skype, right? All in the <laughs> trying to keep light out from the screen. So what you see behind me is our content planning calendar that drives our marketing and training team. Because we are co-located, our entire team, writing, marketing and training, all of it, we're all about making work visible. But that means different things if you're physically co-located or distributed and we're electronic. So this one rolls around and it's got 12 months literally taped to it with painter's tape. And every training, every podcast, I've got a keynote next week for a United Way, everything goes on it. That's big stuff, like all those high level things so we can see and plan. And then when we're doing our backlog refinement as we get closer and we're thinking our marketing and training team works in one week sprints. So when we're getting ready for that backlog refinement session, our planning for the next week, we can look not just what's happening this week, but we look further out. Geez, we've got this coming up in three weeks and that's like a two day course. So we need to make sure that that whole deck has been reviewed, is approved, it's at the printers on time so that it gets delivered on time, right? All the little things. We have a similar version, but it's electronic for the grant team. Instead of big trainings and speeches, we're talking about the big applications, right? How many components are there for that grants.gov piece, the New York State Grants Gateway? By having it be visible, we're all able to see what's happening to think about our role, to come prepared to planning. Yes, I love Post-its. I really, honestly, I should be sponsored as a business, I think, by 3M. In case they're listening, I mean, I could use some college money for the kids. Could be helpful. I do recommend super sticky notes or they will fall off your whiteboard and onto the floor. And if you have an office puppy, it would be treacherous. So I want to ask you questions about the colors on those sticky notes. But before I do, what are super sticky notes. I've not heard of these. So they're sticky notes, only if you flip them over, they're still like the 3M normal post-its. They say super sticky and it means there's some sort of extra adhesive. I don't know the engineering behind it, but they've got some extra oomph and they will stay 
for long periods of time instead of like, oh, an hour or two or whatever's going to happen. They'll stay up for weeks and they don't go anywhere. Nice. Now, now I've got to ask you, is there a color coding? Because I see some things are highlighted in yellow. I see there's looks like pink post-it notes and yellow post-it notes. And I can't tell if that's blue highlighting or blue post-it notes. So is, the, is this color coded? How have you organized it? It is color coded. And the color coding across the teams actually isn't the same. So they don't have to be the team picks and operates independently, right? They share knowledge. But so like you're looking on the screen at the marketing and training. So pink are the actual events, whether it's a webinar or in-person training. There's blue on there for things like our Agile and nonprofit. We do a quarterly free book club. So that's what you see on there that's blue. Our licensed Scrum Master course through Agile and Nonprofits is blue. So those are our two primary colors. The green that you see on there are actually team members' birthdays. Those are really important and we don't want to forget them whether we say so on social media or not. Same things with like, then the other color green are like those days, like National Writers Day, International Grant Professionals Day, things that are like related to the field that we want to help people celebrate in a fun way. So that's on there too. But like the writing team, their colors are based on their versions. So version one, two, three, and four of the drafts are different colors. Man, I love that. I am hoping that you might be willing to take a picture of that whiteboard with all the calendars on it. You know, obviously zoom it far enough out that, you know, you're not giving away any trade secrets. Because seriously, that is such a great, and, and I am a paper kind of a person, that is such a great organizational system. I love it. It seems like it's, wow, but right, it's going old school, coming off the computer. And if you haven't ever heard of the Miro app, M-I-R-O, it's free. It's a virtual whiteboard. You can take a picture of your physical stickies off the whiteboard. It will translate your handwriting into text that other people can read. And it's online and it's free and it's game changer. I know I can see how excited you are. Favorite app. Maybe Miro will want to sponsor me too. Between 3M and Miro, we're going to get nonprofit funding for everybody. So we will post links to two additional things on the show notes. I will find those two super sticky notes and we will post to those. And we also are going to post to Miro and I'm going to have to check Miro out myself. It's so fun. I'm such a tool dork. I love it. But when you're thinking about how to make work visible and easy and fun whenever possible, right, I'm all in. So unfortunately, Diane, we're not going to have time to talk about your Formula race car experience or for that matter about your Coast Guard boat training experience. So Listeners, if you want to hear about either of those two things, you will undoubtedly need to register for one of Diane's book clubs or go to one of her trainings or make sure you go to a conference where she's a keynote, and then you'll be able to learn about those things, and you are going to have just a great conversation with Diane when you do that. Hey, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You have just provided some incredible information for our listeners about ways that they can use scrums and sprints to keep their team members from burning out and to really keep their team members' energy high. So listeners, if you think that Diane can help you or your organization in boosting the capacity or securing that game-changing grant, you can find her at dhleonardconsulting.com. That's dhleonardconsulting.com. And from there, you can get the Agile Leadership Training. You can find out about grant services. There's a great blog, templates, and other free resources and webinars that you've got to make sure you check out. Hey, Diane, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a fantastic conversation. We're going to have to pick it up over a cup of coffee sometime. Absolutely agreed. Now, 
Listeners, there is no need at all for you to be worried if, for example, you're standing on a subway car and in one hand you've got your phone and in the other hand you're hanging onto a pole so you don't fall down as the car lurches from stop to stop. So if you're not, we're not able to write down Diane's information, don't worry about it. We got it for you at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And also while you are on our website, please feel free to make sure you hit that subscribe button and then rate and review us on your podcast streamer of choice. And I always say this, but I love listeners that reach out. I love answering questions. I respond to every email that I get. So please do not be shy. Reach out to me on email or on LinkedIn. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.